0: Hi, my name is Aiden King, and I currently live in Rockford, Illinois, and I became a humanist after I realized, after 27 years, that I was no longer a fundamentalist Christian because I did not have sufficient evidence for my belief. It's not about Sticking to one belief system just because you've been told to stick to that your whole life. You're not just, you know, conservative because you were told well, that was just the right way. You look at, you know, the values and the opinions of somebody in a political party. Or if you look at a religion and you look at, you know, does this religion suit my values and, you know, my personally held beliefs? And does this follow the evidence? And as humanists, we look at if it does not follow the evidence, well, then we need to find a way that either we can find better evidence or find a new belief. (laughs) And it's okay to change your mind. The reason why this movement is important to me is because I, again, came from a very fundamentalist background, and there was a lot of emotional turmoil and damage, not not just done to me, but to my family and the people around me that I cared about. And looking at humanism, it's a movement for not just the reduction of harm, but also for the betterment of humanity itself. And we can all interpret that in our own ways. We don't have this dogma that we have to stick to. And I really do find that amazing. I believe that humanists must attack belief systems because beliefs inform action. So if you look at today's politics, you know, today's Um, commercialism today's systems just socioeconomic circumstances all of that is informed by personal beliefs strongly held personal beliefs and if those beliefs are not challenged there's no room for development, for growth and challenging a belief can be seen as a form of attack however again without that attack there's no room for growth there's no room to change ideas and thoughts and to learn from them and become better. Attack is not necessarily meant to be aggressive. It's more about being assertive when challenging others' beliefs and their belief systems. You're not attacking the person, but you may be attacking the beliefs and you're not going to let up on that because you do feel that those beliefs may be poorly
1: informed. The Humanist Being presents
2: When Humanists Attack
1: Hi, my name is Chris West for When Humanists Attack. Uh, Today we're going to be speaking with Aiden King. Um, Aiden is a current uh, co conspirator in the group here with When Humanists Attack. But I found or heard about Aiden when I was listening to the Atheist uh, Community of Austin program, the Atheist Experience, this last January. And Aiden had called in as a caller. And when I heard, what Aiden was talking about, I felt that I wanted to reach out and talk to her, and started a friendship and a discussion with her. And I wanted to give Aiden an opportunity to share her story more deeply than than that format allowed for. And um, joined with my uh, co-host Roger Kimmel Smith. Roger, welcome.
2: Hey, very excited to be here. Welcome, Aiden.
1: Yes, very much welcome, Aiden.
0: Thank you. <laughs>
1: so, Aiden. Tell us about your your story. Tell us uh, more about who you are and and what your background is and, and your life experience.
0: Absolutely. So uh, I was born in Japan. I'm a military brat. So I am Asian, but I am not Japanese. <laughs> and I was born to uh, two parents in the military, in the Air Force. And they divorced when I was three. I ended up living with my mom, and while I was living with my mom, subsequently she got very, very much into um, a fundamentalist Christian sect, like fundamentalist Mormonism without the polygamy. For her, she grew up um, really just being a a non-practicing Catholic, you know, Catholic in name alone, and then when she got pregnant with me at 20, out of wedlock. She mm-hmm. kind of found support at the time in the church. Mm-hmm. So they took her in. And in fact, that was part of the reason why she said that my father divorced her, was because she got into the church and he was not about that.
2: Were they both uh active duty at the time that they met? And and your mother continued to be in the Air Force while she was raising you?
0: Yes. So they were both active duty. They met in Japan. Mm -hmm. And then she got pregnant with me, like I said, out of wedlock. (laughs) So I'm a bastard child. And my mom continued to work until she had remarried the man that I call my dad. He's my stepdad, but we don't talk like that. And when she got pregnant with my sister, seven years younger than me, That was when she got out of the military.
1: So the church that she interacted with and joined when she got pregnant with you for that support, that was a church that was popular with the other people in the Air Force? Was it associated with the military?
0: To be honest, I'm not entirely sure. I would say it's not necessarily focused so much on the military as it is in Asian areas. So I know in the Philippines, they have their own version. It is uh, called Church of Christ, and they're known to be called non-denominational, but they are extremely fundamentalist. Um, when you're talking about fundamentalists, like I said, if you if you imagine Mormonism, like women are not supposed to wear pants, following, you know, very... Uh, very very strict rules based off of numbers in Leviticus and yet preaching this idea of Jesus coming and repealing a lot of those rules and yet still having to follow those strictures and in fact i i used to laugh about the belief system because it was just so such a juxtaposition on itself you know they'd say one thing and then the very next minute they'd say the exact opposite that i i would compare the way that they followed the rules as uh the pharisees in the bible which jesus called whitewashed tombs or a pit of vipers so
1: (laughs) so a um a thorn in their their side from an early age when did you start pushing against the the cognitive dissonance that you were feeling from that type of contradiction
0: Well, I guess the first thing I would say is the very first moment that I had cognitive dissonance was about when I was seven. I was in the church. I had just listened to this, this wonderful, wonderful sermon in my mind about uh, this couple that was in, I believe, I think it was China. And they were proselytizing, you know, to a bunch of these atheists and, you know, Buddhists and whatnot. And all the the things that they were doing, like, you know, creating better um, structures, supposedly, for, you know, low-income villages and that kind of thing. And I was incredibly moved. And uh, after the sermon, I went up to the preacher, and I was like, I want to do that one day. And he was like, oh, well, you can't do that. You're a girl. And... <laughs> At seven years old, in that moment, everything just kind of was turned on its head. And I sat there for days, months, and obviously now years, wondering, well, what about me isn't good enough? like, Or why would I feel so moved by this sermon only to find out that I have no role to play in this, according to them? And yet this is the most important question, according to them, uh, of our salvation. It just, man, that really created the cognitive dissonance. And then when I began to really push back, I would say it was around 12 to 14. I remember um, in Belgium, when my family got restationed there from Nebraska, a preacher and his wife came to our house. I didn't know what was going on at the time, but they went to speak to my mom and dad. And when I came in after they left, my mom was weeping. And I mean, weeping on the couch. And I just couldn't imagine. It was like somebody had died. Hmm. I just couldn't imagine what they had said. And what I found out was that the preacher and his wife felt that it was their place to come to our house and tell my mom that she was living in sin because she had divorced my father even though it was guaranteed that he cheated on her you know which is grounds for a divorce in the bible but because of that quote unquote iniquity not only were was her soul and my dad's soul in mortal peril but all of my siblings were basically born with this almost like a blood curse where they were being damned. And so they told her that she needed to divorce my dad, go back to my father and beg him to take her back. And he was already remarried too. <laughs>
1: so oh, That would be a lot of unwinding, Whoa. right? To try yes, to... There
0: was so much to that. And I just, it blew my mind that they felt that that was their, Not just their right, but their duty to come to my house, to my parents' house, and to make her feel like that. And I just couldn't, I could not abide that. And after that, it just, it was like every little event after that just was a thread that just kept, a thread being pulled here and here and here until, you know, suddenly I realized that whatever, you know, religious shawl I was wearing, so to speak, was totally
1: unraveled one of the things that we've spoken about in the past is uh your relationship with your mom and uh how the belief that you guys were in uh colored how she saw you as you got older and and started obviously not wanting to be a part of this this group and this religion anymore can you talk a little bit a little bit about that
0: oh yes absolutely um I would say actually it's it's a multi-layered problem and I would relate 95% of the issues of me and my mom having a good relationship not just growing up but even now it's very tense sometimes walking on eggshells um all comes back down to the to the religious aspect really and part of it was that again I was I was the product of her shame so to speak Mm. being born from the iniquity of her sexual sin and then Church of Christ, as I said, is extremely fundamentalist, and they take a very, uh, I mean, I'll just be frank, a very misogynistic approach to belief in saying that women, you know, Eve gave Adam the apple. So he may have eaten it, and that's his sin, but she tempted him, you know. So one thing was that I was her, her visual come-to-life iniquity, so to speak constant
1: reminder of
0: of her quote unquote sin and then beyond that she
2: never she was never questioning she was never questioning any of that doctrine she was just swallowing it you know or is there more to the story
0: I would say actually uh it was interesting she she does experience a lot of cognitive dissonance I know she does and She has questioned certain aspects of the belief, but when it came to the shame and outward and self punishing behaviors towards womanhood and sexual sin, so to speak, she did just take that. She grew up in a house where she was very neglected and she saw how her mother my my grandmother lola would leave the house to go and have affairs and the anger and the damage that that caused to that marriage you know it, it was an unhealthy marriage from the start but being a child seeing that and being neglected and feeling unloved especially you know really affected her so when it came to internalizing those lessons of shame and guilt and self-punishing and allowing outward punishment i mean she never got beat but she was you know emotionally and mentally abused by many people in her life before you know i ever came along it was a continuation of that and i in fact i do compare the way that I grew up in church, I do compare that to an abusive relationship. You know, I, I hear I've heard the term before, I think, on Seth Andrews podcast, The Thinking Atheist, a uh, battered wife of Christ. And it really does feel that way because they tell you every Sunday that you're going to hell, that you're just never good enough. It, it, it truly is like they, they suck you in. And this is what happened to her. She was alone. She was pregnant, and they offered her support. And what the church was doing is the same thing that an abuser does. We love you. We love you. We love you. We love you. And then a couple weeks, a couple months, the love bombing starts morphing into we love you. We love you. We love you. But we don't like the clothes you're wearing. Well, we love you. We love you. We love you. We love you. But we don't like that you're too outspoken for us. And it's the old
2: story, I love you, you're perfect. Now change.
1: Yep,
0: yep, and unconditional
1: became... love with conditions
0: mm-hmm. exactly. It became way more of the but, and this is how you're not good enough, or why we don't like you, or why you don't fit in, and a lot less of the we love you.
1: So, what how did that unpack? in your relationship with your mom as you were becoming a teenager every teenager part of the teenager journey is is seeking that separation
0: well i would say that as i got older my mom saw the the blossoming of womanhood in me and part of her dislike of me was that internalized message of hatred of women including herself and therefore me mm. part of it was she saw again every single day her manifestation of her quote-unquote sin and then also part of it was that she saw that again I, I was coming into my own maturity in womanhood and beginning to have crushes and the potential of dating and that Oh, my gosh, that was incredibly intense, you know, because I think at that point she saw me as a way to vicariously correct, in very strong parentheses, her mistake. And so growing up, she used to read uh, these books (laughs) that were written by some Christian author that were called uh, God's Design for Sex. So every year there was a book that got a little bit more in detail. And actually, I I won't lie. They were, they were actually pretty decent books for, for sex ed considering. But
1: showed you where the G spot was, I'm sure.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this but, is you know, a clitoris. This is pleasure. Oh
0: they, yeah. They definitely didn't talk about that. It was definitely all purity. It was just like, this is mm. a man and a woman and how they have babies and don't masturbate. <laughs> but <laughs> You know, when she saw that I was interested in dating and stuff, she was just like, you know, constantly trying to keep me away from that because she wanted me to be pure. Because, I, again, I think she thought she could rectify whatever mistakes she thought she had made through me. And the more that I pushed back on that and began forming my own identity outside of her, oh, no, that does not work because I'm not conforming anymore. We're not enmeshed in that way. And literally that is the term for the kind of relationship I had with her. We weren't allowed to have secrets. You know, I wasn't allowed to have any personal private thoughts or ideas. If my feelings were not 100% modeling hers, then Mm. it was just all hell broke loose. Mm. But it's the same. Again, it's the same model as the church, in that sense Mm. of you must conform to every stricture, thought, dogma, whatever. And if you don't, well, there's hell to pay, literally and figuratively, I guess. Mm. But then beyond that, too, one thing I've learned since coming out of it is that oftentimes people who go to these churches, like the very extreme fundamentalist fire and brimstone one that I went to, tend to then perpetuate that authoritarian attitude and behaviors in the house where they then have the control so as i began to say like when i was 14 i refused to wear a dress one day to church i I just i was done with that i didn't want to do it anymore i wasn't going to wear a skirt and i wasn't going to wear a dress i absolutely hate them or did
1: Mm -hmm. in
0: fact it's taken me up until this year so 14 years later before i wear dresses when I want, because I hated them that much.
2: (laughs) Recovering sartorial shame or whatever. Oh, yeah.
0: Well, and, and, you know, pants are for men, skirts are for women. So I I need to stay in my lane, literally and figuratively. (laughs) But as far as like when I, she was like, well, you know, we're not going to church until you wear, until you change and you're wearing your dress. And I said, well, then I guess I'm not going and she was like, well, then you're going to be grounded until you. And I was like, I don't care. I'm not going. I don't want to go anyway. <laughs> At 14. That perfect blow moment
1: up... for it. Yeah, absolutely perfect moment for it, though.
0: Oh, Lord. Yeah, that blow up was pretty awful.
2: <laughs> from from the standpoint of today, knowing what I know about you, an explosion like that seems inevitable, you know, mm-hmm. sort of bizarre that it took until you were 14, but, but I want to ask something else uh, mm-hmm. about y- your military brathood. I mean, were you moving from country to country, but you know, between childhood and 14? And I would think that that, that international experience must have cut against some of this dogmatism, you know, and probably more for you than for your, your mother. If She sounds like she was just relying on authoritarian structures all the way from the army to the church to, you know, the totalitarian home.
0: Yes, I would agree with that. You know, I I would say growing up, I moved from country to country. Usually the longest places we stayed were three years because that's a typical Mm -hmm. tour. However, we did do six years in Nebraska and I believe six years in Germany for sure. And even after that, actually, I've I've really honestly considered or continued that nomadic lifestyle where I'm not so much set on being in one place. I follow the job for me, mm. and what I do, and that's okay. And I, I like it because I have had so much exposure and so many experiences. And there are things like, there are places where I was like, I'm never going to like Alabama, for instance. But you find beautiful things and wonderful people in great places to eat and whatnot in all these different places. So in that way, yes, that definitely was mind-opening. And I think... Not just the moving in the military aspect, but also the generational change really, I think, was a big shift in the thought mentality. So you'd be correct in saying that, yes, my mom really went from one authoritarian system to another. And when she got out of the military, that's really when she did get very, very much into the church because that was her structure right that was her And, quote, and quote, as quote, a woman,
1: quote. from what you're telling us, as a woman who grew up needing to create her own structures because her own home life was so unstructured, that Non-loving. must have been, yes mm-hmm. seeking that kind of surety, I mean one of the things we know about alter, uh, you know uh, authoritarian governments and the societies is that what they offer is stability. Now it's not a stability a lot of people want to live in because it stinks what's well, the devil you know though yeah the, exactly
0: she may not have loved that devil at every moment she at least knew that devil and that was as you said that was stability that was structure it's support in her mind and that is one thing that the church does tend to have over so many people when you know I, I can't tell you the number of people I've heard when they leave the church the thing that we've all missed including me is community. They do a damn good job. If if you're sick, they'll bring you casseroles. <laughs> you know. But for me, I think I always knew that I was different. And again, there is such a cultural shift in generations. So when I was coming into school, being bi was was the thing the new thing. Like you are allowed to explore that. And that was not just mind-blowing to my mom it was terrifying because when she was growing up in school you couldn't even be gay and that was without the fundamentalist religious structure. so yeah, I mean, in that where sense, were, too, that's where in I secular
2: came. school you're talking about
0: yeah so i i was going to a military school in germany mm-hmm. before that i was homeschooled <laughs> so very much very much a controlled schooling environment. In fact, when I went to high school in Germany, I had a biology teacher and uh, there was this quiz on um, basically the age of the earth. And when I answered the quiz, you know, I I was like, well, I know that the textbook says this, but I know that it's only 3,000 and something years old. I knew I would get points docked off for that. But I did it, you know, I was 15 and he pulled me aside after class. And what blew my mind, you know, because I knew he was going to dock me. And like I said to me, he was this very scientific man. It blew my mind to find out that he considered himself a Christian. (laughs) That was another massive moment of cognitive dissonance for me that you could reconcile science with belief. Because that was not the way I grew up.
2: Yeah. I'd like to ask uh, you, Aiden, to talk about wh- what you do for work and, and how, you know, you got into wanting that and doing that.
0: So uh, basically growing up, like I said, I had two very influential teachers in high school to me. I've always been interested in science, but I was also always very good with psychology and English. And in fact, I was recommended to like an advanced psychology course in high school. And, you know, I think part of that really honestly does come back down to the church because you, you had to understand so much about why people think the way that they were thinking. So without realizing it, I was taking my beginner's course on psychology just growing up but also on street epistemology, (laughs) but also, you know, I I basically to say that I was, I was recommended into that. And I actually said no. And when they asked me why I said, because I don't like to help people. And again, it comes back down to that. I just felt emotionally and mentally depleted. I was, I, I just could not get love. In my opinion, you know, so when you're running on that empty gas tank, you kind of don't have that thing really does go you can't love anybody until you love yourself well i I really did hate myself growing up, you know it's constant torture, so absolutely i didn't have I didn't have any emotional wherewithal to help anyone else in fact, you know, going to a therapist for the first couple of years there was uh some some discussion about how i might even be a sociopath
1: <laughs> I mean, because of lack, but, of lack of ability to access your emotions.
0: Yeah, I just couldn't. Yeah, it's just. so... Well, but also
1: because better. you had all this astute uh,
2: insight, mm-hmm. you know, and and if you were already, you know, manifesting cognitive dissonance and having grasp of psychology, you were able to get objective uh, oh. input.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. And yeah, absolutely. And in fact, if anything, because I was able to make those objective, you know, analyses of these interactions every day, and then I was able to mirror or model behaviors and expressions and ideas that I was expected to do, and I was taught so well how to do that. That's where the sociopathy thought came in. But anyways, so basically, I knew I was really interested in science too. And originally, I thought I was going to go into architecture, but I had two very influential teachers. One was my biology teacher, um and then the other one was my chemistry teacher. And so, at 16 years old, it was kind of like I woke up one day and I was like, you know what? I think I want to do, want to do something with really like, like science, like. I think I want to be a physicist or an engineer. Yeah, I'm going to do that. (laughs) And uh, so I took, like, intro to engineering courses in high school. And the nice thing about growing up in a military school is actually they do have some very, very good programs with that. Probably because they're hoping then you're going to go into the military and do engineering stuff. But (laughs) regardless, I did not do that, but I still had good engineering courses. And then uh, getting into college, originally I was going for biomedical. And I realized very quickly, again, I did not want to help people. And 95% of the field at that point, by the time I got into college, it had already narrowed down 95% to making prosthetics. And I was like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) So I uh, talked to the the dean at my second college, and they said, I think you're going to like materials. So I go into that, and the very first day that I go in there – the professor that I had melted a penny in his hand. Still don't know how he did it. <laughs> but after that, I was like, I was hooked.
1: I, I know how he did it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do, Chris. But uh, as far for me, I was just like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And then uh Alabama's very, very heavy on metals. So I obviously had professors that were very heavy in metals, and so one of the videos that they showed in the first semester was iron pouring, and that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, Mm. and so that's what I went for. Now I'm a metallurgist.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and you work as a metallurgist.
0: Yeah, so actually when I originally started out, technically my degree is material science and engineering. I did my internship with Hubble Power Systems, which really was a co-op. So I would do half a day of school because that was the course load that I had then. And then I would work a full day at Hubble Power Systems three days a week. I was exhausted. And I was part of three main societies, that I'm still part of two of the main ones. And then I actually just got pulled into the Cupla committee last week somehow, accidentally.
2: You want to just briefly describe uh, how a typical workday or week goes for you?
0: Uh, yeah, basically, I wake up at 445. And I take my narcolepsy medication, and I go back to sleep for an hour. (laughs) And then my second alarm goes off at 535. And I get up, I start work at six. Most of my job is running the lab. While I don't know how I manage to do this every time, because I hate supervising. I have ended up as a supervisor over the lab and all the employees on all shifts <laughs> for every job I've worked. So. Competence
1: is something that people want to use.
0: I'm sure. I just hate supervising, in all honesty. I hate that the more, the higher in management you go, the more you have to supervise and the less hands-on you are. I really do. <laughs> but it is what mm. it is.
2: You get problems taken care of the way you want them taken care of.
0: Fairly well, yes. I, I, I use the three F's rule. And it's not the fun kind of F's, really. But it's firm, fair, but friendly as my management technique. But yeah, so right now I have two techs, one in each shift. And we run sand testing for casting process and then the metallurgy. I also do equipment repairs for the lab and then root cause analysis investigations, as well as process improvements, as well as being a metallurgist, I'm inherently quality so I make sure that I track and log all of our data for X amount of years that's required via ISO and IATF, And because I am in safety critical automotive, they're very stringent requirements. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of little nitpicky things that I do right now. I am doing an investigation on three failed parts, different parts for different things. And then I'm also again daily logging that, running the lab, and then I also have been working on changing the charge mix for the actual ratio of materials that we do in our initial melt right now.
1: Yeah, I mean that's
0: that's the the surface of what I do.
1: <laughs> like real everyday engineering. So that's that's it's cool. You've always uh, described how. When you're doing that kind of work, it's Mm -hmm. very fulfilling, even though there's a lot of extra hours and things of that sort. And a lot of stress. A lot of stress, yeah. One of the things I wanted to touch on um, was uh, your medical situation, Mm -hmm. because one of the reasons that that you called in on that particular Mm -hmm. episode of the Atheist Experience is that Dave Warnock Mm -hmm. was on. Dave Warnock famously of Dying Out Loud, and uh, you also have a, a chronic uh, and, um, I think, terminal um, or at least serious long-term condition. Why don't, you, why don't you tell us a little about that? I remember you telling me a story about um, if it had been handled earlier on in your life, you probably wouldn't be dealing with this, if I remember.
0: Right. Yeah. So, I, I actually, I have a few conditions. One of them, as I mentioned earlier, is narcolepsy. So, you know, I cannot control my circadian rhythm. My body does not regulate that. And actually narcolepsy is an autoimmune disease that your immune system basically attacks the neural connections in your brain and destroys them. And once they're destroyed, they're they're just gone. As far as science is right now, they cannot be repaired. The thing is, is that when you have one autoimmune You have multiple because, again, you know, your your immune system is not going to be like, oh, these are the sleep weight cycle cells, you know, so we're just going to hit those like they get everything. So I'm also losing control of my muscles. Um, My joints are already extremely arthritic, including in my neck, which is why I have to like lean and support myself a lot. My back constantly aches i'm in constant pain what most people would consider a seven for them i've labeled as a two or a three because it's just it's chronic it truly is and no amount of ibuprofen or gabapentin or anything else is going to fix it but then as far as um one of the things that is a medical problem for me is I have adenomyosis, which is basically endometriosis, except it grows inside this this scar tissue that I developed during you know my my curse as a woman <laughs> that time of the month, basically when that that tissue sheds at that time, it scars my insides, and so that, that scarring and that tissue grows both inside and outside of my uterus, and when I was 14, the pain was so intense, and again, I am very used to pain, but I literally was in so much pain all of a sudden that I keeled over, got very sick, <laughs> not to be too graphic, so we went to the doctor, and I told them, Hey, there's something wrong, you know, blah blah blah, and she was like, "No, nah, you know, I think you're you're just going through like PMS." And I'm like, "This is not normal pain." But they wouldn't listen to me. And unfortunately, again, I I did not have the support, and it was viewed that because I was a woman, you know, we were expected we're expected to endure a certain amount of pain threshold that I was just being a baby about it and so after when I finally actually went to my second college which the first college I went to was a very Christian college also Church of Christ but the second one that I went to they their secular college had one of the best medical programs in in the U.S. for colleges and they found that the damage between having that being ignored and then the uh, just to be frank, the multiple rapes that I experienced at the hands of somebody at that first Christian college mm. had too far damaged me mm. for repair. So I also experienced literally daily chronic pain from that. And then as far as like I said, when you have one autoimmune, you have multiple. Um, I was looking into that, and in that I was trying to get a second opinion, and then unfortunately I lost my job at the time from from covid yep lost insurance Mm. and then basically could not get that second opinion but the first opinion looked like something not als but something like ms and severe or whatever which would explain the pain the joint swelling the exhaustion some of my other very serious symptoms, the constant tremors. Um as I said, unfortunately, even right now with this new job and insurance, I still am not at a point that I can afford that testing right now.
1: God bless America.
0: <laughs> and our and our medical system, right? And in yep. our insurance system. Yep. But that being said, you know, uh the reason why I called into the atheist experience from this, Part of it was, again, my mom at the time, in her mind, her identity is, I am a Christian. So when it came down to realizing I am very ill, I'm in chronic, really severe extreme pain, and I'm losing control of my muscles and my mind to an extent. You know, I'm I'm sharp, but... I'm starting to have momentary blackouts now. that's that's just started within the last couple of months. So my thing was I really had to face that, and I used to be terrified of the thought of dying. And when I lost my belief, or let it go, really, I felt relieved, honestly, truly. And part of that, too, was then thinking about, okay, like, I'm not afraid of dying anymore. And if anything, I would almost view it as a relief. <laughs> I I like the way that Christopher Hitchens said it, where, you know, when, when it comes our time, it's kind of like everybody's having a party, and you have to leave a little bit before most other people. And it's a bummer, but at least you got to go. Yeah. That's what I love. But... Part of this, like I said, this illness is facing, how do I want to go? So I called about how to discuss with my mom death with dignity, because I think that I should have that right. And especially, I do, I told my mom before, and I've said it more than once, that I do not want to reach the point where I cannot care for myself, where I'm wheelchair-bound, cannot feed myself, they're changing my diapers that's not living but unfortunately with her belief system uh, she just can't have that conversation and also i'm her baby so yeah. she, she doesn't want to have that but when she comes to justifying it well it's a sin you know and if 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 you do that and you're complicit in that then you know that that is unforgivable in god's mine and i'm like how do i talk to my mom about this because this is a serious thing so she, I don't have a partner. I don't have any other family. Like I said, I'm not in contact with my father. So she is my caregiver. She will be my caregiver if I reach that point. You know, unless I find somebody to have that power of attorney, I need her to be on the same page as me for what I want.
1: Yeah. So that does bring me to an important point And one of the reasons why I think talking with you really brings home one of the things that we as an organization have been talking about for at least a year, which is the things that you get from your belief, that community, even though community that community is screwed up and it's telling you you're wrong and you're, you're going to burn in hell if you, whatever is that we on the secular humanist side, we don't have those structures. We don't have these groups we don't have a place for someone in your situation to go. And that's why I reached out to you because I don't think anybody should have to go through any of that feeling alone. And we're such a nascent organization. We don't have the resources to be able to create what I think I'd want to create to make sure that you would have that support and that you'd have that place, you'd have those people. But that's the vision. That's really that's really the vision. I, I'm watching TV and I'm seeing, uh, you know, St. Jude's Children's Hospital. I'm like, well, okay, St. Jude's, you yeah, know, great, but where's the mm-hmm. the non-St. Jude's? Where's the anti-St. <laughs> Jude's? You know, hospice. Where's the 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 uh, the cool Vermont uh, retreat where chronic illnesses <laughs> can go and mm-hmm. spend their last days around people who love them and who aren't going to guilt trip them. So.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one thing is that, you know, as every day I'm, I'm looking at my mortality. Every day, what do I want my life to look like while I have this capability and this and that? But one day I'm not going to have that. Yeah. And I don't know whether that's going to be three years or five or maybe 10 if I'm lucky. But, you know, there's going to be an end to that. And when that happens, what supports do we have? And in fact, You mentioned that how I called AXB the one time, that's how you saw me, but I I was on there twice. And the second time I called um, was a follow up on that. And both Dave Warnock and at that time Matt Delahunty came back from his surgery. (laughs) And they both said that unfortunately, there's just really not a structure for us right now. And that is something that I look forward to hopefully, maybe at least trying to start the brainchild of building in our own organization, but also, you know, there are so many things I want to do before I go, of course, and I'll never get to them all, but that is one of the ones because I know I'm going to need that. Everyone dies, you know, and having a support system, as you said, that doesn't guilt trip you where I can spend whatever, however many days and, and the time that I have and the ability and the capabilities that I do or don't have faculties about me time, you know, uh, to be able to have a peaceful, calm, supportive environment without the need for a God, without the need for this idea of the future. So absolutely. Yeah. And, and if about. you
1: decide I'm done,
0: <laughs> that the people
1: around you are like, We're there with you for that. Right, Right,
0: exactly. And that's just it. When I go, I want my end to be a celebration of my life. You know, for growing up in Christianity and this promise of an afterlife, it just always amazes me how terrified everyone was of dying (laughs) and how deeply they mourn as well when they have this whole dogma, you know, in this whole mentality of, well, we're going to see them in the next life. So kind of all, that was another cognitive dissonant thing for me. Like, wh- why aren't you celebrating that they're dead? <laughs> but, you know, for all of that, we still mourn. And for me, I want my, I want to choose when I go. Yeah. I want to choose how I go. I don't want to die in immense misery and suffering and pain, unable to care myself and humiliated not living, as I said. But also I want to have a celebration and create this wonderful last memory for myself before, you know, my flame goes out. And I want my family and my friends to have that memory as well too. You know, and in all honesty, you know, with the amount of pain that I'm in, I've thought about it more than once. With the lack of resources right now that we have, I've just thought about, you know, one day I'm going to say I'm going camping by myself in a national forest. And when I really say that, what I'm saying is it's done. But that's that's just not the way to do it. Let's no. just be honest. It's not. Yeah. But we just don't have the support structure right now for any other way.
1: Well, let's, let's strategize about that, huh, people? Let's, let's figure this (laughs) out. Well, definitely, that'll be
0: something we'll strategize in the future, I'm sure. You know, this is not a thing that we have to resolve today, of course. (laughs) No, not today, but but when
1: I, when I first got to know you, one of the first things that I did, and uh, that's just what I do, is I looked up non-religious, secular, humanist type uh, places where people can go and deal with, you know, hospices. And there was like, well, we had one in Minnesota and it was going for a while, but then it closed and there was one over here. And I'm <laughs> like, there's got to be enough resources within yeah, the non-religious community to make something like that happen. And I think that one of the things that, that we do as people is we create systems for the needs that are in front of us, right? We, we look around us, we say, oh, that's a need. And we work on that need because you're affiliated with us because we care about you because you've really become a very good friend of ours this is important to us you know i have no idea w- what kind of resources we can throw at this or what kind of resources we can make happen for this but th- this is important to me not just yeah. not just for you because i care about you but but for all of us who knows yeah, i could find out tomorrow that I'm, I'm i'm you got a month to live you know who knows exactly that's what i mean you know
0: we all die yeah. And I think that, you know, part of it is looking at what what we need to do or, you know, what we should be doing in activism for political rights, you know, because this is very much a political issue as well. But also, yes, you know, as far as resources, while we are a small group right now, as you said, there is truly a growing number of non-believers and there are organizations coming about, not just, you know, just general humanist groups, but things like a non-religious version of AA. You know, I needed that. Yeah. Or the Secular Therapy Project, which I am currently enrolled in, which is wonderful. You know, these things are coming about. It's just taking time. But certainly this is one thing that I do have as a, a goal for my literal bucket list <laughs>
1: <laughs> that does bring me to one interesting question, because one of the things we've talked about in a number of our meetings and and uh, a position paper we're planning on, on putting out is not so much what we think is going to happen after we die, but what do we want done with our remains? Do we, do we want to be buried and have a tree planted on top of us? Do we want to uh, be cremated? Uh, do, do we want to try to do something very low impact? um cuz cremation takes a lot of energy what what are your thoughts on that just just to to ask the question
0: i mean personally for me i'm gonna be honest i won't exist anymore so i don't care <laughs> now mm-hmm. i will say i do not want my funeral or whatever that might be to wake and funeral if depending on where i am you know in the south they do both but i don't want that to be religious Absolutely. And just like if my mom wants a religious funeral, I will give that to her. If I do not want one, then I do not want one. And I I do think that if anybody loves and respects me or my memory, that they would follow through with that wish for me, because I don't want my funeral to be some jacked up event that ends up being this weird religious thing that makes people feel yucky about all the proselytizing (laughs) That's going to end up happening, you know. And then as far as my actual remains, again, in my mind, once when I I go, it's kind of like taking a very long nap that's just indefinite. (laughs) It doesn't end. And I love sleeping. But as far as, you know, at that point, I don't exist anymore. So if they want to bury me, honestly, I would prefer to be cremated. And I would... If there is a better option for low impact, because you're correct in saying that, you know, cremation at least has been shown to have a heavier carbon footprint. I would prefer that because honestly, I do not see the point of buying a very fancy wooden box with satin in it that my death juices are then going to leak into all nasty like. And and in Illinois, they don't just bury the box. They actually create like a a concrete mausoleum underground because they don't want your death juices to then leak into the water system. So it's even creepier than just burying the box. So, yeah, at the very least, I don't want to be buried, probably. (laughs) But again, I'm going to be dead. I won't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, one weird thing about again about my mom and, and she, her like base personality is she actually kind of has a similar outlook as me on death, where she's like, you know, once I die, she was like, I don't care what you guys do with my body. She was like, hell, just take me out to the backyard and burn it. <laughs> and I was like, you know, honestly, if that were legal. I would do that too. <laughs> I would. <laughs> I was like, shit. I don't care if you throw me in, throw me in the ocean. <laughs> fish, fish food. I, I, right. I do not care. Recycle me. Reci- make the most use out of it. It probably shouldn't do anything spoilant, green type, but.
1: <laughs> well, Aiden, this has been an absolute joy speaking with you this evening. Um, I want to thank Roger again and for for helping me out and, and hanging out and chatting with you. Um, I'm really glad that we got an opportunity to finally sit down and, and talk to you about your story and, uh, listen to a very, uh, a varied, uh, story about different parts of your past. <laughs> um, it's always a joy to talk to you and learn more about not only your, your own personal experiences, but the way you see the world, which is different than the way I do, which is always enriching. So thank
0: you absolutely thank you and again thank you to roger and you for taking the time to do this and you know again there there are plethora of stories i mean literally at least 18 plus years of it but but thank you for taking the time today and i i look forward to doing this again and i always look forward to talking with you guys
2: and here's a postscript a few weeks after we conducted this interview, Aiden suffered a significant loss. She had to put down her beloved dog, Sheriff. And she came to us afterwards saying the experience of losing Sheriff had created at least a sense of hope for her of greater common ground with her mother. Listen.
0: So Death with Dignity, my mom, through this, thing I think actually she's coming to terms slash is cognitively moving towards peace with death with dignity.
1: Okay. When Thank
0: her you. dog died, when she died, it was really sudden, sudden and very emotionally painful for my mom. In this event, all of us came home, all of us were there. We all said goodbye spent time with him, gave him, you know, the best of our attention, the best of our love. And he was happy, honestly, like if, like his last night and day, like to have gone home, to spent that time with him, have those last pictures. I brought my professional camera, mm. you know, I captured the last moments with us and then I was able to give him his last dinner we all, you know, we got the area ready for him because we did it at home. They brought it that van. We did it at home and put out like this blanket. And he just kept going back between all of us, smiling, you know, in his dog way, wagging his tail, booping his nose on our faces because he, he was blind and deaf at the point, basically. Because I think he could feel that we were, There was an anticipation in the air, and then, you know, we gave him the sedative, and oh, my dad gave him sirloin steak, Mm. and then, you know, he got the sedative. It works pretty quickly. He got tired. At that point, my mom and my sister gave him their favorite chocolate because dogs, of course, they can't eat it because it's poisonous, but in the last moments, it's kind of like a delicacy. And then we all just had our hands on him in that last moment. And that's what I mean. It It's painful because there is a hole in my heart, but it was truly a lovely moment. And after that, my mom just kept saying, I wish we could all go like that. I wish we could all go like that. And hmm. that is such a change from the conversation that I had with her. That sparked my call to the AXP, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that just, man, that's massively different. And so I think there's a lot of good that came out of that, especially because mm. even if it's real or not in my mind, I've always made this deal with Sheriff that when he was ready to go, I would come home and he would let me know that he was ready to go and he would wait for me to come home Mm. and whether it's real or not i feel like that promise was fulfilled between the two of us so it was it wasn't horrible it was hard and definitely sad in some senses but it was also lovely
2: yeah 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 beautiful Uh, Thanks again to Aidan King for the multiple interviews. When Humanists Attack is produced by Roger Kimmel Smith, Chris West, and Vincent Downing, and edited by Roger. Our theme music is titled Pod Men from Sector 7 by Eric Bode. When Humanists Attack is a production of The Humanist Being, a secular humanist nonprofit incorporated in the state of Vermont. Find out more about us at thehumanistbeing.com dot o-r-g